Hello, I'm Abram Van Ingen. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today we're going to read and discuss This is Just to Say by William Carlos Williams. Joanne, before we begin our discussion, would you be willing to read that poem for us? Yes, I would. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious, so sweet, and so cold. And that's it. That's it! (laughs) That's it! Love it. <laughs> I love it. So short, so simple, so awesome. You've taught this poem a lot of times. When you teach it to students in a poetry course, what, what kind of reactions do you get to this poem? I teach this in my Introduction to Literary Studies course. And when I do, students are often really angry. Um, there's, <laughs> there's a few moments that I consistently have that are like this with students. When students hear and see this poem, they get so upset because they don't see any craft They don't see any artifice. They don't see anything that's ornate or deliberately calling attention to itself as a poem. So what makes this a poem then? Well, when you read this poem, like maybe we could do with this poem what we've often done with others and just sort of break down the ways in which it might be a poem and not just, and of course it's a note, of course it feels very immediate, very basic, very terse, but If, for the purposes of this podcast, we can talk about it as a poem, what are the things that leap out at you right away? So first, for me, it does have stanzas. It does have line breaks. And so one of the things that I think is is particularly relevant about this poem and kind of difficult to talk about on a podcast is that poetry these days is, is as much visual as it is oral. That is to say, the white space matters. The line breaks Mm -hmm. matter. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to see the line breaks when you're just listening to a podcast. But I have eaten, line break, the plums, line break, that were in, line break, the icebox, stanza. If you wrote this out as a simple sentence, it would not have the same effect as writing it out as a poem with line breaks, stanza breaks. And then the other thing that you notice is, first of all, that the line breaks kind of force you to pause a little bit. There's a kind of a mental pause that goes on. So this is just to say is the title. And you pause and think, well, what is he going to say? I have eaten. What have you eaten? <laughs> right? And you, you kind of go through and there's, there's, there's a little pause. But then also there's there's this kind of remarkable, for, for an incredibly simple poem, here's a few words that stand out. Saving on its own line. Forgive me on its own line. Mm-hmm. And then this, this simple repetitive end, so sweet and so cold. Mm-hmm. There's actually a thing going on here. <laughs> right? There's actually is structure and purpose and design and craft going on here. Okay, I think that's absolutely right. So your your attention to line breaks, I completely agree with that. In an interview from many years ago, a an American poet, Stanley Kunitz, once said that every line of poetry should feel like a station of the cross, which, oh. fe- which feels very, <laughs> very dramatic and alarming. And certainly I think he meant it in that way. But I think what he was trying to say is that every single line of a poem should carry essential 
information that leaves you on a cliff like that, right? So what you mm -hmm. just did with that first stanza, that first quatrain, I have eaten, what have you eaten? The plums that were in, what were they in? The icebox. They're as basic and simple as this language seems, it sets up three stanzas. And of course, that word stanza comes from the Italian for room. And again, as tiny as this is, there are three little rooms that we inhabit in this poem. So the first little room tells us a concluded act has occurred. The, the plums have been eaten. And notice he's not in the process of eating them. He is <laughs> not planning on eating them. They have been eaten. They are gone. <laughs> There's no permission asked. No. There is only forgiveness. <laughs> no, you will not see those plums again. They, they have been eaten. But already, though, we know that they were in the icebox. Now, that interests me because it's not a refrigerator. And when I ask my students what an icebox is, they usually do not know that it was a large box in which you put a giant chunk of ice. The Iceman came every day, and especially in summer when food can spoil so easily, you really counted on that delivery of the ice, and it would melt throughout the day. And so whatever you put in that ice box had to be really precious and worth saving. So already that first quatrain tells us a lot about the world in which these plums are situated and a poetic speaker that is already taking care of them. But what about when we get to the second stanza? What kind of room is that? So this interests me because now you create a whole narrative scenario of relationship between two people. We know there are two people at the beginning because we, we get this address, right? This is just to say, saying it to somebody, right? But now we get this whole narrative element, which is the this fruit was not for him. <laughs> he took the fruit. He says, you were probably saving that for breakfast. Well, now this person doesn't have breakfast. And on the one hand, you think, this is a small thing. On the other hand, you think, we're talking about forbidden fruit here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, ta we're talking about this guy stealing somebody else's fruit and eating it and really not caring too much about it. <laughs> well, but he did take the time to write the note now, Abram. Come on, he did at least write the note. Yes. You know, if he didn't care at all, he wouldn't have taken that time. But yeah, so now there's the introduction of another individual. So this is now an I-you poem. Yes. Uh, and then what happens in the third stanza? One of the things that strikes me about this stanza that feels so complete about this poem is that it, it's almost as though he took the plums and was headed out the door and then ate them and was like, oh, damn. <laughs> These plums are amazing. Yeah. And so he leaves the note almost, it's not really about an apology. It's more about noticing the amazingness of these plums. And mm -hmm. that's one way to read this poem is that it is asking you to notice. Mm -hmm. it's, and, and each line, each line break, the fact of the spacing, the fact of the white space on the page, the slowing down of it, He's performing this act of saying he, the simplest, most ordinary things in the world. I took these plums. I was eating them on my way out the door. Require attention and become extraordinary when you slow down and pay attention to them. And these plums so stopped me <laughs> mm -hmm. that I had to come back and write about them. So this is uh, my favorite stanza. And of course, I think this is what makes the poem so famous. It's a sorry, not sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So this is... 
it seems to be a poem that's asking for forgiveness, but then it reminds us of why the plums were worth stealing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, at the risk of making this be like a podcast that refers to another podcast that goes to, you know, I don't want to go like down a <laughs> vortex or anything, but my, my all-time favorite uh, podcast is called Still Processing with Wesley Morris and Jenna Wortham. They have a whole episode on the sorry, not sorry apologies that have appeared in recent years on Twitter and other forms of social media. And I think that could be what has in part given this poem a kind of second life. Absolutely. And, you know, just to stick with that third stanza, one of the only repetitions in the poem we get is this word, so, so sweet and so cold. Mm. And I love that ending because that word, so, is such an intensifier. It Basically what it's saying and what he's doing in this poem is saying, these words, this language I have is not quite good enough. Hmm. Like no amount of language is going to convey to you the experience of just how amazing these plums were. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it doesn't matter if it's a rhyming uh, with iambic pentameter. It doesn't matter if it's short and simple. The point is the language itself is pointing beyond itself. The so, when you add that to a, to a word, it means that the thing is more than that word itself. It's so sweet that sweet is not sufficient unto itself to describe this thing. It's so cold that cold is not sufficient to describe this thing. So that's really helpful because now I'm thinking about sound as well as sense. And that's another way in which this feels very poetic to me. Look at that, again, that final stanza, just as one example. The majority of these lines are maybe three to five syllables, but the way he's thinking about where to drop the beat and how long and short the syllables should be really interests me. Forgive me. They were delicious. So sweet. And so cold. Like, that really slows me down a bit. The sound makes me linger on the sweetness and coldness. So he's intentionally getting you to notice what you might not have noticed. That's right. And that's just a simple pattern of repetition. It only appears a couple of times, but it's super important to him. And I think it fits with the whole tradition of what he's doing. So we've talked before on a different episode, and we said, well, what makes this a poem? Well, part of what makes a poem a poem is that they call it a poem. (laughs) And when you call something a poem, what you're doing is you're inserting yourself into a whole bunch of traditions. And you're talking back to them. So part of the kind of richness of a poem is where it fits in these various poetic traditions. So talk to me a little bit about how all of this language we just talked about, this bit of structure, this really simplified diction and so on, how it fits with the kind of traditions that he's engaging with at the moment that he writes this poem. So when I teach this poem to my students, I also show them a slide of someone who was a pretty big influence on William Carlos Williams. I show them an image of Marcel Duchamp's very famous sculpture titled Fountain. So Fountain caused a stir in the art world because Fountain is basically a urinal from a men's restroom that is turned on its side and exhibited as art. And this made people, they were so upset about this. It was so controversial. Mm. But what Marcel Duchamp was trying to get at was something very conceptual. This notion that instead of assuming that a visual art object required an enormous amount of craft and labor and discipline, What if just by virtue of calling this a work of art and putting it in the space of a gallery, 
that that makes it so. For William Carlos Williams, this was a really intriguing idea because he was trying hard in his poetry to create poems that sort of captured the American idiom. He was looking for poetry that was just stripped of ornamentation, stripped of artifice. He wanted immediacy. He wanted a freshness and aliveness and energy that he felt best represented the way we actually speak in America. So, so there's this huge, amazing historical context that makes this simple poem so much richer. But the poem doesn't just live in its historical context no. in that moment, in the pre-World <laughs> War II. It, in fact, accrues readers through the years. Mm. And this poem itself takes on new life and new life and becomes something more and more as readers encounter it. And one of the things I love to do with this poem is, is just to to talk to folks about how poems meet readers, because different readers meet poems differently. And if this is not the kind of poem that meets you, there are two things. One, you can move on. There are other poets. But two is to ask yourself, why does this produce and generate such a response in so many readers? And so one of the questions is, how has this poem met readers and how does it continue to meet readers? You know, you read a poem like this, it is so canonical. So many people have encountered it in high school or in college. And you just sort of move on with your day and don't think about it. A poem about plums in the icebox, though, that were probably being saved for breakfast, takes on a whole new valence when, in the early days of the pandemic, you're like spraying down your shoes with Lysol <laughs> every time you walk in and out of the grocery store, right? And, you know, uh, on Twitter, there were several different takes on the poem, you know, regarding scarcity and abundance and, and how important it is to not steal other people's food. The, <laughs> the poem also can take on a political valence. So, for example, you know, immediately following the election uh, in 2020, Celeste Eng had an interesting spin on this poem. She wrote, I have scheduled the press conference that was at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. <laughs> And which you were probably saving for the Four Seasons Hotel. <laughs> Forgive me. It is hilarious. So sweet and so cold. That's just, amazing. We'll just leave that there. But then, <laughs> but then, actually, even as far back as 2017 on Twitter, there was a whole thing where when there was an increase in the number of characters that you could add to a Twitter post, you know, people were starting to have a little bit more fun with this because the poem was just big enough to parody on Twitter and you could have room for it. So uh, so they would post tweets to the tune of Mr. Brightside by the Killers, <laughs> right? Now I'm falling asleep and she's eating my plums. Now she's now he's opened the icebox and she's taking a plum. Another person, uh, Megan McCarran, she rewrote This Is Just to Say to the tune of I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys, right? <laughs> this is nice. Plums are my fire, the sweet <laughs> desire. This is just to say I want it. And it goes on. <laughs> I'll, I'll spare you, you know, my singing. But my favorite, Elon Musk, who, of course, is active on Twitter. It's fun to respond to tweets with this William Carlos Williams structure, right? So Elon Musk on July 12th, 
He wrote on Twitter, those who attack space maybe don't realize that space represents hope for so many people. <laughs> yes, yes, Elon Musk, it does. That is correct. I don't think that people are attacking space, though. So my favorite cultural critic, historian, writer, Rebecca Solnit, she decided to channel the spirit of William Carlos Williams uh, and respond to Elon Musk's tweet. Uh, and then she's sort of channeling the voice of Elon Musk as well. This is just to say, I have burned the fuel that was in the rocket, and which you were probably saving because climate. Forgive me. It was all about me. So much me and so cold. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not space that we object to. It's the <laughs> fact that you have enough money to... <laughs> solve some serious world problems and you're going up into space in a rocket instead, you know. So it, I think, again, to go back to something we said earlier, it's that sorry-not-sorry sorry structure that a lot of people enjoy playing with. And so I think that the important point to, to think about here, though, is that with poetry, what we're talking about is poems acquire lives. And when you encounter a poem for the first time, you may not know both its historical context or its afterlife. But the more you can kind of experience and come to know those things, the, more, the richer the poem becomes, even such a simple poem as this. I, I feel so jealous of William Carlos Williams, just from a poetry point of view. <laughs> the fact that he was able to create something that is so memorable and memorizable, that is every poet's dream. So should I read this poem again? I would love that. This is just to say, by William Carlos Williams. This is just to say, I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me, they were delicious, so sweet and so cold. <laughs> so cold. <laughs> If they were so cold, why do I feel so burned? <laughs> burn, William Carlos, burn. Oh, thank you for reading that again. For more information about William Carlos Williams, please visit our website at poetryforall.fireside.fm. You can subscribe to Poetry for All wherever you get your podcasts, and please be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you.